Hello there. I didn't even see you standing there. You look fantastic. You truly do. Because you are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed your gracious and your grateful host. Hope to be doing that until the sun explodes, ladies and gentlemen. Good times are on the horizon. Why? Because uh, I am graduating from fucking psych school next week. I am so excited. Two and a half years of this, folks. Uh, I think I did the math on this. I think I've written about a 500-page paper, all told, of citing and sourcing and all this kind of crazy technical writing and academic writing I did not know I could do. But I did it, nevertheless. Ecstatic about that. Next on the horizon, I may start actually making some money as a therapist. Going to monetize my past trauma for final, finally I'll pull it off. Um, but also, uh, today, I'm calling it, I think today basically is the anniversary, ladies and gentlemen, of the Inspired Minds podcast. About a year ago, my friend and I, Michael Lee Simpson, started talking about this thing. He approached me, and he said, I have access to a lot of people. Would you like to speak to them? And I said, I don't know what the fuck that means, but we'll figure something out. And here we are. I'm elated. My God, we've got about 55 episodes, seven, something like that up. I think this may be the 58th, but we've got a lot more banked. It has been nonstop, and I've spoken to some incredibly intelligent people. This whole thing, the whole year, this process has been amazing for me, too, because it's making me a better therapist and vice versa, because all I'm doing with these clients that I talk to is is, is a, a Socratic questioning. What's behind that? Tell me more about that. Can you define that for me? Like, let them figure it out. Open-ended questions. That makes for a good interview, it turns out. So it's been incredibly great, A, because I get to be a better therapist as a result of this podcast, but B, I get to talk to some pretty cool people, and I get to go all over the map. So I want to kind of just run this down, because it is the anniversary show, but first of all, I am going to be, of course, going to play the Flintstones classic happy anniversary song. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. That's uh, Fred Flintstone and uh, the short guy, Barney, and a couple other guys from on the piano singing to Fred's wife, ladies and gentlemen. That bit was dumb. Um, but here's the deal on this. It's really fun. So if you go over to inspiredmindspodcast.com that my good friend and producer, Mr. Michael E. Simpson, did put up, it's fun. I get to go through a lot of these things, like all these people that I interviewed. It's amazing. Brilliant people. Off the Richter scale. Diana Asana won an Academy Award, for God's sakes, for a little film called Brokeback Mountain. A guy who owns Michael Uslan owns the entire film rights to all of Batman. Figure that one out. Um, Marianne Madalena, amazing woman. Richard Potter, these people. The head, God's sakes, like one of the heads of Rolling Stone, for God's sakes. I talked to that guy. The Washington editor, uh, the senior editor of the Washington Post. I mean, it's just on and on and on. These brilliant people across the board. One of them uh, is a woman named Tracy Mercer, who, and the great thing about the show, honestly, is that I've been able to become good friends with a lot of these people as a result of the show, because I just like talking to them, because we just kind of continue what we just talked about from the podcast into the rest of our worlds. And I've done that certainly with this fabulous woman, Tracy uh, Mercer, who was come to think of it, actually, a recommendation from another fantastic guy named Andrew uh, Trapani. That's right. Trapani gave me Mercer, who now is, and the reason I bring this up. And by the way, Tracy's a gold star woman. She's, she's legendary, my goodness. Brilliant, wonderful, hilarious, charming, fill in the blank with anything great. She's that. And then she got me to this next person, Cole Haddon. She's like, you need to speak to Cole. He's a pretty smart guy, too. You're going to like this guy. And I'm like, oh, cool. Talk to anybody. 
And yet again, she was correct. I don't think she fails in anything. So this guy, Cole Hatton, an unbelievable conversation I had with this fine man. He is, he's a novelist, he's a screenwriter, journalist, and guy, he's so much, so much amazing stuff. Um, he, the show Dracula with Jonathan Rhys Myers uh, wrote for, uh, wrote with that. It's done a lot of fantastic graphic novels, including uh, one about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So he takes on these, we actually did talk about that too, talked about taking on these archetypes of horror and kind of seeing how to reinvent them as well. Um, he has this book called Psalms for the End of the World. It is 528 pages and it's sprawling and it's massive and it's brilliant. I can I can barely write a 20 page, I can't write a pamphlet sometimes. I have so much ADHD. 528 pages and every word is just perfectly placed. It's an elegant book. Highly recommended. Um, we talked about the stratification of class and society. We talked about, my God, it went everywhere. The increasing pandemic of the uh, pandemic of disconnection that we talked about. We talked about quantum entanglement, like of physics, and then how that applies to the higher ideals of humanity. Um, we definitely got into Young Einstein, which or Yahoo Serious. Anybody knows what the hell I'm talking about? That was a fun little diversion. Um, but again, just 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 absolutely brilliant man. Uh, Psalms in the End of the World book. Seriously, go to Amazon or wherever you can act. Or go to hopefully go to actual bookstore for fuck's sake. Get it in your hands. Um, and that's kind of it. But, you know, I'll also say this, too. You should go to a site called Haddon.com because he wrote this thing a little while ago called How John Denver Helped Me Find My Way Back Home. And it's about grief. And it means a lot to me because it's about his, his family and his connection to that, to John Denver. And I share the same, actually. I just, I just read this tonight, and I'm pretty moved. So... Brilliant man. And again, I am incredibly grateful to all the people that listen to this thing, but more importantly, I'm grateful to the people that I get to talk to. So, as always, I truly hope that you enjoy this as much as I did making it. And happy fucking anniversary, uh, producer friend Michael Lee Simpson, who I know is listening to this for, you know, quality check or whatever it is that you do. Um, God bless you. You have changed my life. You're the agent of change, Michael Lee Simpson. I love you to death. How's that? Bye. That love proclamation over the, over the internet. Have a great night, everybody. I really do mean that. You'll love this guy. Bye. All right, dazzled throng, you lovely dazzled throng, please say hello to the lovely and talented Mr. Cole Hatton. Please say hello to the dazzled throng, Cole Hatton. Hello. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. I am thrilled to bits for this one, as I often am, but especially this one because... Uh, Europe, there's so many things that we have in common, but I always like to start off the show with the following question, and that is, when you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that truly inspired you? What lit you up? Was it a song? Was it a book? Was it a TV show? Go. Oh, you know, I I was thinking about this recently. Uh, there there was a moment. It 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 it's so appropriate for people who work in film and television uh, who were born in the seventies, the but my mother uh, was throwing an Avon party uh, in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, and I had been exiled to the bedroom uh, to watch television. I, I think I might've been four or five uh, and there was just a black and white television, uh, terrible reception, but King Kong came on uh, the original uh, and and there was just something magical 
uh, about it. And it's, it's interesting because I don't remember much of my childhood. It tends to be very dramatic, emotional uh, beats that sort of uh, manifest. But I remember that. Uh, I remember the the awe of watching uh, Harryhausen's uh, Kong. It wasn't exclusively Harryhausen, but just the 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 Kong uh, aspect, you know, stop motion. Uh, and I, I think it was more or less the same year that that my parents, uh, I don't I don't know why, but allowed me to watch uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, I'm, I'm, I must have been five, very young age to watch somebody's face melt off. I think the one-two punch uh, of those, just they, they were so wondrous. Uh, I, I didn't, um, I don't think I knew what to do with that energy, but I know from there it, it was off to the races. I never stopped uh, dreaming in terms of stories. And was it? You basically, you did answer the second part of the question, which is how did that get you there or to where you are now, which is, thank you for indulging me because that's a through line that I just love looking at. And what I find interesting too, is that you're basically talking about the magic realism or the magical realism of film. It pervades, uh, that that magical realism pervades so much uh, of uh, of my life. It, for some of us, it just comes to define the way that uh, you interact with the world. Exactly. And and it's it's within that interaction that I find the stories, apparently, where that's kind of an obvious statement, maybe. But as a storyteller, I, I'm curious, do you find the stories or do the f- stories find you? Oh, I think it's probably a combination. I, when I was uh, working in Hollywood... And I still work there, uh, but I, I, I left a, f- a few years ago uh, to move abroad. Uh, when I was working there, so much of it was driven by concept. And so you you had to seek out stories, uh, not, not unlike my background as a journalist as well. I, I learned to, to seek out things that people might find entertaining. Uh, mm-hmm. And over time, though, I've, I've learned to to trust that uh, what what the the motivator now seems to be uh, what I need to talk about uh, mm-hmm. and what I need to talk about tends to find a story uh, on its on its own it finds a way to express itself I do far less uh, at this point in my career uh, just dreaming up ideas uh, to pitch people and more I dream up things I want to talk about and then find a way to express that. That might have been a little muddled, but it's it's a it's just an evolution in the way that uh, that I I tell stories. No, and it makes perfect sense. I think what you're saying is that you find the source, however you do that, and oftentimes I say this a lot. I'll say that there's two things to be a great storyteller. One, tell the story, whatever that means, film, TV anything you want, but to find the story is the most difficult part. And it's not necessarily just sourcing the material per se, but like you're talking about, finding something to talk about within that particular context, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. And it's just, it's reversed itself, I guess, over time, because in Hollywood, uh, 
which sounds so monolithic when you say it, Hollywood. But in Hollywood, the the movie business, the television business often is driven by ideas. Somebody will come to you with a world that they want to explore, maybe a piece of old IP they want to hear some new take on. And you uh, you find a way to make it fresh, often by discovering that thing that you uh, you want to talk about along the way, or you just find an interesting way in. And as you work, who you are naturally begins to express itself and and take over the the story. Outside of Hollywood, I I find it's it's much more focused. Uh, whether this is in film and television in the UK, Europe, uh, Australia, anywhere. Uh, it, it begins much more with the emotional content uh, or what you're trying to say about the world. And then you shape an idea uh, around that. Yeah. And, and actually that kind of dovetails pretty well. Uh, well, first of all, I'm a, I'm a big old horror fan. To be honest with you, new and old. That's yes. kind of my forte amongst music and politics and therapy and all that. But regardless, <laughs> what, I, what I find interesting is, and in, this is a quote that I found, um, and it's it's about the strange case of Mr. Hyde in the graphic novel. And th- I want you to expand on this. I think this is fucking brilliant. Concepts, so the show, or the show, the graphic novel is about how people can explore concepts of morality are all, sorry, concept of morality are all man-made and as such should constantly be challenged and reassessed rather than blindly accepted. And I really like that idea about Hyde and what he may have learned uh, through that process. This this was the jumping off point uh, for the graphic novel. I, I had been approached uh, by by friends at Dark Horse Entertainment about ideas I might have, uh, and this was uh, was the the only one I think I pitched. I, I might be wrong now; my memory might might be uh, incorrect, but I I, I love the idea of looking at the original novel, which had become tired. Most of these these old books, which really drove my childhood, uh, but, but they're tired because they've been remade as movies and television series uh, and, and shoved into so much pop culture at this point that we, we don't find anything interesting uh, in them anymore. And we're always struggling with ways to make it relevant. Uh, in this case, I decided uh, to set the story five years after the novel and ask what would have happened if Hyde uh, had merged to some degree uh, with the Jekyll persona. Uh, And in doing so, I suppose, became a bit of a a libertine uh, who was able to see the world for what it really is, which is a series of controls, whether that's capitalism or religion or uh, the UK's class system. And and that was the jumping off point. I think I was also largely inspired by a lot of reading I was doing at the time. Uh, I had um, spent about 10 years uh, sort of recovering from losing religion. And I don't know if I ever really had that much of it, but I had struggled to explain the world via religion. And when I lost it uh, or abandoned it, uh, there wasn't 
much to replace it until I think the early 2000s. And I, I discovered other thinkers like Christopher Hitchens uh, who were talking about this. And I think it, that just, it, it, uh, it led me to become incredibly combative uh, to the power structures uh, all around us. And there was something really exciting about taking a, a monster uh, and having him be a truth speaker about the world uh, that we live in, in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <clears throat> it may speak to at least my little pet theory, I'm not too sure much of a theory it is, <laughs> that people aren't, people aren't binary, right? And yeah. I think a lot of the problems that we have in this country, specifically over here, not with you, which I do want to get into, of course, as well, is that we're just, uh, so many of us are concrete thinkers. It's driving me nuts. There's no abstraction. There's no holistic thinking. There's no systemic thinking. And when you get into those worlds of the of these binary moralities, and it's like, there's no nuance attached to anything. But I was telling our mutual friend, actually, that you can't, it's hard to sell nuance, right? And I think that's a big yeah, problem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's something we've we've lost because of tribalism. I mean, isn't yeah. that what the bifurcation of America's uh, culture uh, has has created? There's no longer any overlap, even within political thinking. Nobody can agree that they agree on anything, uh, and and so that that fragments uh, based on on what boxes you're tick, ticking for yourself, things that that become um, uh, identity markers, which are they're, they're such ridiculous things. Like I'm an, I'm a capitalist. What that 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 seems like such a strange thing to uh, to peg your uh, your identity on. At least. God somehow makes sense uh, that there's a, a logic to wanting to there to be some uh, almighty force in the universe that explains everything. But uh, sub- submitting yourself to concepts of capitalism, uh, it's so silly. But then even within that, we, we've fractured any more uh, so that 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 liberals, conservatives, whatever it is, they they fractured. Nobody. Nobody can really do more than agree upon working together. They they still struggle to agree on anything within that uh, that system. Yeah, the the gray has vanished, and you can see that in film and and television, where where that nuance it, it's not really present anymore in in significant popular culture. It's it's really not. And before I go too much down that rabbit hole, I'm going to put that rabbit hole aside, and then we're going to go back to um, – I want to talk about Dracula, actually, too, because, again, yeah, yeah. Big, big nerd. And what's really interesting is um, – and, and for the uh, for the collective audience here, um, it was a, what, two-season or two-year? I don't know how what? seasons work. Uh, it's it's a single season uh, that – but 10 episodes uh, for NBC and Sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Uh, I really liked how, I mean, and this is kind of what you were talking about earlier about winding different themes in a traditional Dracula setting. The question is, how the heck did you write the Dracula story or how did you rewrite the Dracula story in a way that you did? Yeah. Well, it, it's an interesting 
uh, I guess, creative uh, anecdote. I was asked to to have a general meeting with uh, this uh, producer uh, and sat down with him. At, at the time, I don't know if we, we really hit it off, but uh, I was in a place having only sold two projects that uh, I was excited about anybody who had uh, a, any serious roots to uh, setting up television. And this, this person was very successful at it. And at the end of the meeting, he said, uh, he asked me, are you a fan of Dracula? And I said, well, of course. And he asked, then he asked, what would you do with him? Uh, I said, I'll, I'll come back to you. And the reason why was because I, I needed to rework uh, a document that I had put together uh, to be a sequel uh, to The Strange Case of, of Mr. Hyde, which I had hoped to integrate Dracula into. Uh, and, and so I took that document and began to evolve it uh, to overcome the biggest challenge that Dracula poses, I think, for ongoing television, any, time, any kind of long form or returnable television, uh, which is that Dracula in the novel is not a protagonist. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing to root for uh, at all. Uh, and so I had to uh, find a way, uh, and, and some people like the way I found, uh, other people dislike it, but it is the challenge of the character. How do you make him compelling as a hero or an anti-hero uh, that you want to track and uh, and stay with over a season, maybe multiple seasons. Uh, and to do that, uh, I essentially had to create a motivation that, that you could, you as the audience, uh, could get behind. Uh, and that led me to the the source material that, that Stoker really used, uh, the, the material that inspired him, which was the history uh, of Vlad Tepish himself, uh, Vlad the Impaler, uh, and his origins as as somebody who had been imprisoned uh, in, by the Turkish uh, Empire, uh, who uh, had uh, had become a member of this Order of the Dragon, and uh, and loved. Uh, he he was deeply interested in the sciences, uh, which really conflicted with the reality of what the Order of the Dragon. Uh, represented. Uh, and so from there, I, I, I just kept extrapolating uh, this, this character uh, that, that would have an enemy in the order of the dragon uh, and use that as the, I guess the, the origin that the order of the dragon was, uh, was what cursed him, uh, what made him uh, Dracula, uh, the, the vampire and all these years later, uh, he was—he's uh, introduced to audiences uh, on as a man uh, with a mission, which is to take down uh, the Order of the Dragon. And the Order itself has integrated itself over time in a very conspiracy theory uh, fashion uh, into all of the. Uh, significant governments uh, of the world uh, as as part of a sort of capitalist cabal uh, by that point, because all religion ends up uh, subverted uh, by by money eventually. Sadly true. I will say this just lastly. I love the fact that you took on an archetype because Dracula, it's almost like Jung's archetypes, right? We've got this the hero and the mother and the war, just all that kind of mm. stuff. 
Dracula is in a sense, at least for me, it's one of those worldwide, maybe not worldwide, but at least first world and second world known character. So the fact that you took that high bar on, kudos to you, my friend. I, it it was uh, was very challenging, and it, and when you when you tackle a character like that, uh, you there there are a lot of critics uh, that that come out to talk about. It. Even when you uh, you're a celebrated creator, uh, and uh, and you produce um, a Dracula series like the one that that came out from the BBC uh, a couple of years ago, there's still detractors uh, who. Uh, who love uh, to complain about it, yeah. uh, and that's that's the this is the challenge of Dracula. There is just no easy way uh, to to tackle the character because even if you do it straightforward, if you do the novel exactly as is, uh, it it it's tired at this point. Uh, people don't need to see the exact same thing. Uh, twenty times in their their lives with big with bigger special effects. It just it isn't enough. And speaking of novels, I really do want to get into Songs for the End of the World. It's brilliant, and you this may or may not land. I never know with these things, but it reminds me of Tom Robbins in a way. Does that land? Interesting. I don't know uh, if that lands. I'm not sure. Uh, what? I, I haven't read enough Tom Robbins to to be able uh, to to opine on that. Why Why don't you you explain to me? I shall, <laughs> um, because uh, you know. And again, I got to be honest. It was decades ago, most likely, that I read any Tom Robbins, Jitterbug Perfume, and uh, Still Life mm-hmm. with Hacker, and some of those novels. But he was so expansive in his characters. He had a bouillabaisse base of just all kinds of thoughts and ideas and characterizations and motivations. And it was just expansive. And I guess the reason why I say that your writing reminds me of Tom Robbins is just in the simple fact that there is such expansion involved and there's such themes involved. And to that point, I really thought this was interesting too. And I'm pulling out some stuff here. Um, if this is something that you had said directly, that you're asking essentially what is the true nature of the universe? And that I love this quote, Humans are more important to the integrity of the universe than even gravity. That I want mm. to hear more about. I, I love that you uh, you pulled that out of there. I, it, it is for me the the heart of the novel, and I I don't think if anyone has uh, has zeroed in on that uh, yet uh, when when commenting on the book or. Uh, reviewing it, they'll talk around it, but that always seemed like the uh, the key paragraph uh, to me. I, the, the 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 book is is a very uh, expansive study of reality, uh, how we uh, interact with it, uh, how we change it uh, through uh, the uh, you might even say the pop culture we create, uh, how that. Uh, that even skews how we see the world, uh, and and a lot of it was inspired by, uh, I suppose the uh, uh, the breakdown of of what we all accept to be reality sometime in the the twenty uh, first century, uh, and and I think that that uh, paragraph, that idea that human beings are the gravity 
uh, that hold the universe together is uh, is the result of me spending 30 years uh, evolving away from uh, the person fascinated by space and its potential uh, and what's out there uh, to the person uh, who finds the Elon Musks of the world repugnant uh, because we're here. Uh, right. This world is is falling apart while we endlessly fixate on escape, uh, on uh, on what might be beyond, which is valuable. It, it is valuable. I am uh, I'm I'm still deeply fascinated by space uh, and quantum physics and and the mm -hmm. the real nature uh, of the universe, but the the Earth. <laughs> Uh, and our, our place uh, on it feels very precarious uh, at the moment. And, and there's, and I, I think that's what uh, what is behind that that paragraph, that we are the glue that holds reality together. Uh, the universe exists without us, mm -hmm. arguably, uh, arguably not, <laughs> according to, to some physicists. Uh, but But if we're here, we're the thing that matters. Uh, yes, other life on, on Earth matters as well. But if we cease to exist, if our culture cease to exist, if none of this matters, does, uh, does a bear shit in the woods, you know, like does a tree that falls in the woods and nobody's there to witness it, does it even matter? Like, did it fall? Uh, it, it, um, it's, a, it's a real conundrum and humans are the the key to that it genuinely matters if we are there to witness the that the tree has um uh fallen in the woods yeah and actually there's another quote i want to throw back at you um you were uh talking about how let me get this right that we your characters but i believe you meant kind of also we as well are interconnected across space and time by love, grief, and quantum entanglement. And I really like that quantum entanglement thing because I too am kind of a quantum physics nerd. And mm. it's beautiful. What what a beautiful way to describe it because for the uh, for the audience, uh, quantum entanglement is kind of a fun little thing. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Cole, I tend to um, kind of simplify things too much. But there's a, uh, let's say an atom at one end of the universe and it starts spinning. And at the other end of the universe that there's another molecule that will spin the, in the same way. And if it spins mm -hmm. on the side, it'll spin on the side because they are entangled that way. And I love that idea because I've been, this is my thing for a long time, or at least two years. I've been saying that we are in a pandemic of disconnection that started, you know, long time ago, in my opinion, in the 1980s or perhaps even further back, but mm -hmm with the weaponization of religion and all that, um, that really came yeah. into play. So this idea of us being completely disconnected got increased and, and metastasized during the pandemic, right? So we've lost yeah. our entanglement and that's what scares the hell out of me. Oh, I, I think that's, it's true. And I think that this is the, as we fly apart, uh, we, we all, uh, are at risk. Uh, the, the reality is is at risk. If uh, if reality is defined by how we observe it, then we are are we're part of that equation. And in fact, this is is not 
uncommon in quantum physics uh, itself, where many things only appear when observed, uh, suggesting that uh, that it uh, that these features of the universe require participation on the part of an observer, arguably mm-hmm. us, maybe aliens as well. Uh, but we know we're observing and manifesting things in the universe because of our existence here. Uh, I, and go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. Uh, it it just it, I'm not sure where I uh, I would have taken that that train of thought but it it is part of that if we fly apart then uh then everything else collapses uh, around us it requires our our interaction if we're no longer interacting with it in in a productive way uh the system begins to to collapse uh around us and the novel just tries to dramatize that uh with with uh i suppose some science fiction uh, elements, though I'm not sure if the novel qualifies uh, as science fiction rather than science fiction inflected. It's it's a bit of of everything, but mm-hmm. it does try to express the the necessity of cohesion and the danger we're in uh, in the 21st century as that cohesion breaks down. Which is a great segue into why the hell you got out of America? So you're living in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah. I, I will say this, I will say this just at the top. Uh, clearly, this whole country is going downhill quickly. Um, my personal fear and many others is that in a week, we are going to see the beginning of the end, at least in my opinion. So tell me a little bit about that escape from prison. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I'm only half American. Uh, the other half is Australian. Uh, my my uh, mom emigrated to America in the early seventies to marry my father, uh, and so half of me has always, I suppose, had a, a foot outside the country. Always felt like it was the uh, it provided me a, a way to apologize <laughs> for the American <laughs> uh, half of me. Uh, don't blame don't blame me for that. Uh, I'm I'm Australian. Uh, and so the with the election in 2016 uh, as things were getting i guess more heated uh, there was there were a lot of people talking about how if Hillary Clinton lost uh they would leave the country uh whereas for me that i don't say things i don't mean uh and and i i said that uh and and i think when the election happened, uh, that night was painful for me for many reasons, uh, mm-hmm. because I knew many people I knew were going to suffer uh, as a result. Uh, and, uh, and I was horrified for the, uh, the future of the country, democracy, what this would mean for the rest of uh, the world, how it would lead to greater destabilization. Uh, but there was also the fact that that my wife and I had agreed that if Trump were elected, uh, it was just time to to go. Uh, we could go live somewhere else. Why live someplace that we felt uh, we wouldn't be safe in? And I had felt that way for quite some time uh, because of the the gun epidemic uh, in America and. Uh, it just that that had permeated my 
my life by that point, every time I walked out the door, I assumed I was going to die as, as insane uh, as that uh, sounds. But life in Los Angeles very much felt uh, like, uh, like that scene in L.A. story where he realizes it's, uh, uh, it's spring and so it's gun season on the, on the, the 101. Uh, I think it was the 101 in there. Uh, and so it, it, it felt like this all the time. Uh, and, and the prospect of Trump's America and what that would unleash it just it it was it was too much for me, and I think part of this was because I had spent over a year at that point working on a an Otto Frank project, uh, and Otto Frank often thought about the fact that his wife had wanted to leave, uh, and he had convinced her not to, uh, mm-hmm. and and that stuck with me that if Otto had just listened to to his wife, they would have left Europe uh, and would still be alive, arguably still alive today, uh, if her health had held out, uh, and and that the family all died because of that single decision. I, I was less concerned about legitimately dying uh, in the near future as much as just happiness, safety, the, the desire for my children to grow up in a world, in a country that made sense to me. Uh, and so after the election, uh, I uh, we put our, our house up for sale. We were those people. Uh, and we moved to the United Kingdom uh, and spent four uh, absolutely wonderful years there, despite the pandemic for the last year of it. It was still magical. We lived two years in Southeast London, uh, which, which was just it, – it, it, was, it was a fantasy. But then we, we moved to the – the countryside to Oxfordshire and then spent two years just walking along rivers and through green spaces uh, and, uh, and palace grounds uh, and little villages. And, and that cured me, I think of the city. Uh, and then as, as the, the, the pandemic wore on and I'm, I'm about to wrap up, uh, we, uh, we just realized that I had, I had always talked about that when the world ends, you would want to be in Australia for many reasons. Uh, and I had always thought we'd end up back in Australia, but but usually in those thoughts, it was more in my 50s. But the pandemic made it impossible to to think about that anymore. It was uh, it was it felt like it was time to just think about being home and to think about no longer being nomads as we would have been in the UK. Uh, for several more years, and that's how I ended up back uh, in Australia, where where I lived uh, in my twenties, uh, and so we're located now in the Blue Mountains, uh, just west of uh, of Sydney. Gorgeous, gorgeous. I've I'm semi familiar with Sydney. Never been there, but um, I've got some friends of mine that live out there. But so here's a thought, or here's a question: Has Trumpism infected Australia? I know that's a big statement. It uh, it has to a certain degree. Uh, it politically, it significantly affected it uh, as it as it has uh, the United Kingdom by changing the way that politics worked on the conservative side uh, of the table because uh, it told these uh, Trumpism told these leaders they could get away with whatever they wanted and people would keep supporting them. That somehow people would tolerate the the worst uh behavior 
from politicians. And certainly the last uh, Australian government was uh, deeply corrupt, deeply criminal led uh, by, by an incredibly uh, incompetent uh, buffoon. Uh, but unlike America, uh, Australians are very good at kicking uh, governments to the curb uh, with elections. Uh, they, they are very community-minded. Sometimes uh, Aussies might say to, uh, to a fault their willingness to act as a, a collective. But after several years of, of the prime minister here trying to make himself a, a Trump-like leader, uh, stirring up uh, the far right, whether that was on trans issues uh, or uh, or appealing to um, uh, conservatives about capitalism over the environment, uh, not uh, standing behind women uh, in any uh, discernible way. Uh, Australians overwhelmingly booted uh, him and his cohorts uh, from office, largely driven by two issues, which were climate change and women's rights. Uh, and so it's, uh, at the end of the day, there is an element here. There is a 5% of, uh, of the population, uh, and it is roughly 5% who fought vaccines and love to drum up trouble and protest, complaining about how fascism had arrived in Australia, uh, while the other 95%, and it was 95%, uh, promptly got the vaccine uh, so they could all take care of each other and go back to normal. I believe that 5% are called bogans. Am I correct? Uh, that is a, it's a complicated term uh, and a source of pride for some people, not nearly white trash in the same way as it is oh, in the U.S. Yeah, no, it's, a, it, it's, it's easy to perceive it uh, that way, but it's, it's a far more nuanced uh, term the the working class is not uh, the and and culture that comes with some of that uh, the the aspects of of the working class they're not um, denigrated to the same degree. There is certainly a, a, a class system uh, here, but but tradesmen uh, often make more than people who have university degrees here. Uh, it's it's very much like the '40s and '50s in the United uh, States in the '60s when. Being a tradesman was a legitimate career that made you uh, uh, enough money to live a very good life and have a holiday house. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's a complicated uh, term. I'm learning so much. Perhaps in the next episode we can talk about Yahoo Serious, one of my other favorite. Um, just <laughs> I don't know nearly enough about Yahoo. No one does actually. That's the point. <laughs> That's the whole point. On a side note, I, I know way too much about dumb stuff. On a side note, I do recall when Yahoo Serious, because don't forget, this is going so off the radar, but when Yahoo yeah, Serious, right. when Yahoo Serious, the film came out, right, that was after Crocodile Dundee. So mm-hmm. they put all this money into it in America. I'll never forget this. I was like 15, 10, whatever it was. And I remember that the amount of promotion they put behind that Yahoo Serious movie, which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, it was atrocious. It was some guy who was sort of famous, and I think it was New Zealand or Australia or whatever. It was this crazy guy called Young Einstein was the movie, and it was awful, and it failed miserably. I don't know why I brought that up, but <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> so how's this for a non-sequitur segue? I do want to talk actually for a second, at least about this, about an article I read of yours about COVID. And I thought this was really interesting. I didn't think about this, about how 
there aren't any real films or art necessarily produced about COVID. And specifically back in the, in the Great Depression era, you're right. They had people like Chaplin, um, and especially even Chaplin doing The Great Dictator, and Preston Surges, and all these different people that talked about the Depression and also war and all that. And we haven't had a peep about it necessarily. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, uh, the the essay, uh, which appeared in the Melbourne Age and Sydney Morning Herald and a few other papers, uh, asks that that question. And I think, I, I suspect the problem is that uh, in the past, uh, the world has opted to use film and television, really the largest movers of, of culture in the world in the 20th century and early 21st century, uh, as mirrors to show us who we are and to help us uh, internalize and understand uh, significant events uh, and even develop common language about how to talk about uh, those uh, those things. But that uh, began to break down with the advent of, of social media uh, when people stopped looking to film and television uh, for their mirror. Uh, you now could go to Facebook or Twitter uh, and and basically find the mirror that suited you. You could uh, you could move into a bubble. Uh, and and just look around uh, at at other voices uh, telling you exactly what you wanted to think and know uh, about the universe. And so reality began to bend, I, I would argue, uh, away from what we would normally refer to uh, as reality. People now live in these fictitious uh, spaces called their imaginations. Uh, and that division, in society, which is it, it, it exists in many places, but it's certainly driven by the United States, uh, which which still drives so much of this conversation in film uh, and television. Uh, but it, it's it's driven uh, by by yeah social media by the way that that people live in this now bifurcated, increasingly fractured uh, beyond that. Uh, landscape, and and that's how they they understand and interact with the world. And if you if you give that deeply divided population uh, a television series in which COVID is present for the entire season, a percentage of people are going to tune out. They're just not going to pay attention because they they reject it at some fundamental. Uh, level, uh, and I think that that the, the the people, the gatekeepers, don't want to risk losing eyes. Whether you're in the UK or Australia, uh, this is an issue that risks losing eyes uh, and costing you money. Uh, the to be long winded about it, the the problem with this is that nowhere in history, in film and television history, in the the history of the twentieth and even 21st century, has uh, film and television abdicated the responsibility of, of uh, showing this mirror to the world, uh, with one significant exception, uh, this being the Holocaust, which was largely ignored uh, for almost 40 years, uh, leading arguably to significant levels of Holocaust denialism later, uh, and until the 70s, uh, when the Holocaust TV series 
uh, premiered and suddenly the world realized that six million people had died and they just conveniently forgot about it. Uh, and it, it was such a significant series. The Germans even changed how they taught the Holocaust in their school. I need to stop you for a second. That's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. You're saying in the 70s there was a there was a show that showed the reality and then they woke up? Yeah, no, it, I think it's... Uh, uh, 78, I believe, uh, a, a massive uh, television series, uh, miniseries called Holocaust. It, it, just amazing international ratings, uh, Meryl Streep and others. And out of nowhere, people who had grown up, I mean, if you were born in 1950 uh, and you waited until 1978, it was not, Holocaust wasn't you know, taught in school is this anything more than maybe a footnote if you were lucky in America, certainly Europe. It, when did it show up in films? Uh, you get the pawnbroker. You see a little reference to a, a, a tattoo uh, on the pawnbroker's wrist. You, you get judgment in Nuremberg, but do two, three uh, examples in 30 years actually educate a population about what happened and do how many of them used the number six million? How, uh, and so out of nowhere, the world was suddenly hit with this, something that Jews knew very well uh, had happened. But the Germans themselves were determined to forget. Uh, why would you want to remember that? They all wanted to move on. Uh, and then it, it changed uh, overnight. Uh, and it changed in America, too. We had uh, uh, an advent of Holocaust uh, education, I, arguably culminating with Schindler's List, uh, which uh, uh, which really solidified it. But now, and we're 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 sliding because of the <laughs> fact that that the Holocaust is no longer taught at the same level at schools. Uh, conservatives in America are pushing it out of uh, the the curriculum. Movies and television aren't being made at the same level anymore because people have seen enough of it. Uh, and so consequently, uh, Holocaust ignorance uh, is skyrocketing in America and, and elsewhere around the world. Well, on that lovely note for us all, <laughs> but you're right, though, unfortunate. I always funny. I, I was telling our mutual friend this, actually, that, you know, I have these dire predictions for the for the end of the world in like 45, 50 years or whatever, climate change and the end of democracy. And I, I'm mm. losing friends sometimes, I've noticed, which I kind of understand because I wonder sometimes if Nostradamus had any friends at all. <laughs> like, nobody wants to talk to me, and I kind of understand. And with that in mind, I am going to kind of sew this up a little bit, but I do like to ask the following question to writers specifically. Um, I ask it to everybody also at the end of the show, and that is, as a creative, when do you know that you're done? Oh, uh, well, as somebody who just wrote a 528 page oh, novel uh, with with a, a sprawling mosaic of characters, uh, it's it's it is a tough question. I I I have I I try to remind myself, or I guess use George Lucas as a voice in my mind to remind myself that at some point uh, you just have to stop. And you have to be okay with it. Uh, and not, some stories have clear endings. Uh, other stories feel like they they could go on forever. Uh, but you have to ask yourself, uh, what more is the reader going to get out of this experience? Is is the reason to go on for you as the creator? 
or is it is it for the audience? Is it for the person consuming whatever it is uh, you're creating? I, I think for me, the balance is between that. Uh, just uh, wanting to make sure I don't keep meddling with something in in the George Lucas uh, fashion, uh, and and the other just asking myself, uh, am I still going for me? For something that I ha- I can gain out of this, uh, or is there something that the audience can legitimately gain uh, from me continuing uh, to push uh, this project forward? And I think that that's the most telling place to stop. I love this question. Every time I get a completely different answer, and it it really helps me as a creative as well. Um, but that being said, because I have a, I got a thing soon, but um, here's what I like to do, my friend. I like to end the show the following way. I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. You're going to pretend to say goodbye. We're going to quote unquote hang up and then do a quick little post chat. Deal? All right. Here we go. <laughs> yes. The races. Nicole, really, I put a brilliant, brilliant conversation uh, this was from you. Thank you so much for doing this. And I've, you know, I got to be honest, you've really got me thinking about that Charlie Chaplin impression surges kind of idea and why COVID hasn't really taken on. So I'm going to be thinking about that a lot. I had a great time. Your turn. I, I've, I've enjoyed this conversation uh, immensely. Uh, typically, com- these sorts of uh, podcast chats are, are very focused, and I've, I, I've enjoyed uh, the, the sense that I'm just having a, a drink with you, talking about whatever random thing pops up next. Uh, it's, it's been very entertaining. Thank you for uh, for uh, making my day a little better. On a side note, somebody uh, referred to the show as meandering, and I don't know if they meant it as a compliment, but I'm taking it. <laughs> it's anyway. the way we think. Pretending otherwise is just trying to harness uh, forces that are beyond our control, and it always feels artificial. It's like harnessing lightning. You're absolutely right. All right, I'm going to quote-unquote hang up. Here we go. And a three, and a two, and a click.